Book One, Chapter Twelve of Arachne. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anne Boulay. Arachne by George Ebers. Book One, Chapter Twelve. Without even vouchsafing Hanno another glance, Ledska glided forward in the shadow of the bushes to the great sycamore, whose thick broad top on the side toward the tents was striped with light from the flood of radiance streaming from them. On the opposite side, the leafage vanished in the darkness of the night, but Myrtilus had had a bench placed there, that he might rest in the shade, and from this spot the girl could obtain the best view of what she desired to see. How gay and animated it was under the awning! A throng of companions had arrived with the Palestinians, and some also had probably been on the ship which, she knew it from bias, had come to tennis directly from Alexandria that afternoon. The galley was said to belong to Philotus, an aristocratic relative of King Ptolemy. If she was not mistaken, he was the stately young Greek, who was just picking up the ostrich feather fan that had slipped from Daphne's lap. The performance was over. Young slaves in gay garments, and nimble female servants with glittering gold circlets, round their upper arms and on their ankles, were passing from couch to couch, and from one guest to another, offering refreshments. Herman had risen from his knees, and the wreath of bright flowers again adorned his black curls. He held himself as proudly erect as if the goddess Victory herself had crowned him, while Althea was reaping applause and thanks. Ledska gazed past her and the others to watch every movement of the sculptor. It was scarcely the daughter of Archias who had detained Herman, for he made only a brief answer. Ledska could not hear what was said, when she accosted him pleasantly to devote himself to Althea, and, this could be perceived even at a distance, thank her with ardent devotion. And now, now he even raised the hem of her peplos to his lips. A scornful smile hovered around Ledska's mouth, but Daphne's guests also noticed this mark of homage, an unusual one in their circle, and young Philotas, who had followed Daphne from Alexandria, cast a significant glance at a man with a smooth, thin, bird-like face, whose hair was already turning gray. His name was Proclus, and, as Grammateus of the Dionysian Games and High Priest of Apollo, he was one of the most influential men in Alexandria, especially as he was one of the favored courtiers of Queen Arsinoe. He had gone by her command to the Syrian court, had enjoyed on his return at Pelusium, with his traveling companion Althea, the hospitality of Philippus, and accompanied the venerable officer to Tennis in order to win him over to certain plans. In spite of his advanced age, he still strove to gain the favor of fair women, and the sculptor's excessive ardor had displeased him. So he let his somewhat mocking glance wander from Althea to Hermon, and called to the latter, My congratulations, young master, but I need scarcely remind you that Nike suffers no one, not even goodness and grace personified, to take from her hand what is her sole duty to bestow. While speaking he adjusted the laurel on his own thin hair, but Thyone, the wife of Philippus, answered eagerly, If I were a young man like Hermon, instead of an old woman, noble Proclus, I think the wreath which beauty bestows 
would render me scarcely less happy than stern Nike's crown of victory. While making this pleasant reply, the matron's wrinkled face wore an expression of such cordial kindness, and her deep voice was so winning in its melody, that Herman forced himself to heed the glance of urgent warning Daphne cast at him, and leave the sharp retort that hovered on his lips unuttered. Half turning to the grammateus, half to the matron, he merely said, in a cold and self-conscious tone, that Thyone was right. In this gay circle, the wreath of bright flowers proffered by the hands of a beautiful woman was the dearest of all gifts, and he would know how to value it. Until other more precious ones cast it into oblivion, observed Althea, let me see, Herman, ivy and roses. The former is lasting, but the roses... She shook her finger in roguish menace at the sculptor as she spoke. The roses, Proclus broke in again, are of course the most welcome to our young friend from such a hand. Yet these flowers of the goddess of beauty have little in common with his art, which is hostile to beauty. Still, I don't know what wreath will be offered to the new tendency with which he surprises us. At this, Herman raised his head higher and answered sharply, Doubtless there must have been few of them, since you, who are so often among the judges, do not know them. At any rate, those which justice bestows have hitherto been lacking. I should deplore that, replied Proclus, stroking his sharp chin with thumb and forefinger, but I fear that our beautiful Nike also cared little for this lofty virtue of the judge in the last coronation. However, her immortal model lacks it often enough. "'Because she is a woman,' said one of the young officers, laughing, and another added gaily, "'That very thing may be acceptable to us soldiers. For my part, I think everything about the goddess victory is beautiful and just, that she may remain graciously disposed toward us. Nay, I accuse the noble Althea of withholding from Nike, in her personation, her special ornament, her swift and powerful wings.' She gave those to Eros, to speed his flight, laughed Proclus, casting a meaningful look at Althea and Hermon. No one failed to notice that this jest alluded to the love which seemed to have been awakened in the sculptor, as quickly as in the personator of the goddess of victory, and, while it excited the merriment of the others, the blood mounted into Hermon's cheeks. But Myrtilus perceived what was passing in the mind of his irritable friend, and, as the grammateus praised Nike because in this coronation she had omitted the laurel, the fair-haired Greek interrupted him with the exclamation, Quite right, noble Proclus. The grave laurel does not suit our gay pastime. But roses belong to the artist everywhere, and are always welcome to him. The more the better. Then we will wait till the laurel is distributed in some other place, replied the grammateus, and Myrtilus quickly added, I will answer for it that Herman does not leave it empty-handed. No one will greet the work which brings your friend the wreath of victory with warmer joy, Proclus protested. But if I am correctly informed, yonder house hides completed treasures, whose inspection would give the fitting consecration to this happy meeting. Do you know what an exquisite effect gold and ivory statues produce in a full glow of lamplight? I first learned it a short time ago at the court of King Antiochus. There is no lack of lights here. But what do you say, gentlemen? Will you not have the studios lighted till the rooms are as bright as day, and add a noble enjoyment of art to the pleasures of this wonderful night? 
but Herman and Myrtilus opposed this proposal with equal decision. Their refusal awakened keen regret, and the old commandant of Pelusium would not willingly yield to it. Angrily shaking his large head, around which, in spite of his advanced age, thick snow-white locks floated like a lion's mane, he exclaimed, Must we then really return to our Pelusium, where Ares restricts the native rights of the muses, without having admired the noble works which arose in such mysterious secrecy here, where Arachne rules and swings the weaver's shuttle? But my two cruel cousins have closed their doors even upon me, who came here for the sake of their works, Daphne interrupted, and, as rather Zeus is threatening a storm, just see what black clouds are rising. We ought not to urge our artists further. A solemn oath forbids them to show their creations now to any one. This earnest assurance silenced the curious, and, while the conversation took another turn, the gray-haired general's wife drew Myrtilus aside. Herman's parents had been intimate friends of her own, as well as of her husband's, and with the interest of sincere affection, she desired to know whether the young sculptor could really hope for the success of which Myrtilus had just spoken. It was years since she had visited Alexandria, but what she heard of Herman's artistic work from many guests, and now again from Proclus, filled her with anxiety. He had succeeded, it was said, in attracting attention, and his great talent was beyond question. But in this age, to which beauty was as much one of the necessities of life as bread and wine, and which could not separate it from art, he ventured to deny it recognition. He headed a current in art, which was striving to destroy what had been proved and acknowledged. Yet, though his creations were undeniably powerful, even showed many other admirable qualities, instead of pleasing, satisfying, and ennobling, they repelled. These opinions had troubled the matron, who understood men, and was the more disposed to credit them the more distinctly she perceived traces of discontent and instability in Herman's manner during the present meeting. So it afforded her special pleasure to learn from Myrtilus his firm conviction that, in Arachne, Herman would produce a masterpiece which could scarcely be excelled. During this conversation Althea had come to Thyone's side, and, as Herman had already spoken to her of the Arachne, she eagerly expressed her belief that this work seemed as if it were specially created for him. The Greek matron leaned back comfortably upon her cushions, her wrinkled owl-like face assumed a cheerful expression, and, with the easy confidence conferred by aristocratic birth, a distinguished social position, and a light heart, she exclaimed, Lucifer is probably already behind yonder clouds, preparing to announce day, and this exquisite banquet ought to have a close worthy of it. What do you say, you wonder-working darling of the muses? She held out her hand to Althea as she spoke, to showing us and the two competing artists yonder, the model of the Arachne they are to represent in gold and ivory. Althea fixed her eyes upon the ground, and, after a short period of reflection, answered hesitatingly, the task which you set before me is certainly no easy one, but I shall rely upon your indulgence. She will, cried the matron to the others. Then, clapping her hands, she continued gaily, in the tone of the director of an entertainment issuing invitations to a performance. Your attention is requested. In this city of weavers, the noble Thracian, Althea, will depict before you all the weaver of weavers, Arachne, in person. 
Take heed and follow my advice to sharpen your eyes, added Philotas, who, conscious of his inferiority in intellect and talents to the men and women assembled here, took advantage of this opportunity to assert himself in a manner suited to his aristocratic birth. This artistic yet hapless Arachne, if any, teaches the lesson how the lofty Olympians punish those who venture to place themselves on the same level. So let artists beware. We stepchildren of the muse can lull ourselves comfortably in the assurance of not giving the jealous gods the slightest cause for the doom which overtook the pitiable weaver. Not a word of this declaration of the Macedonian aristocrat escaped the listening Ledska. Scales seemed to fall from her eyes. Hermon had won her love in order to use her for the model of the statue of Arachne, and, now that he had met Althea, who perhaps suited his purpose even better, he no longer needed the barbarian. He had cast her aside like a tight shoe, as soon as he found a more acceptable one in this female juggler. The girl had already asked herself, with a slight thrill of horror, whether she had not prematurely called down so terrible a punishment upon her lover. Now she rejoiced in her swift action. If anything else remained for her to do, it was to make the vengeance with which she intended to requite him still more severe. There he stood beside the woman she hated. Could he bestow even one poor thought upon the Beamite girl and the wrong he had inflicted? Oh, no. His heart was filled to overflowing by the Greek. Every look revealed it. What was the shameless creature probably whispering to him now? Perhaps a meeting was just being granted. The rapture which had been predicted to her for this moonlight night, and of which Hermon had robbed her, was mirrored in his features. He could think of everything except her and her poor crushed heart. But Ledska was mistaken. Althea asked the sculptor whether he still regretted having been detained by her before midnight, and he had confessed that his remaining at the banquet had been connected with a great sacrifice, nay, with an offense which weighed heavily on his mind. Yet he was grateful to the favor of the gods that had guided his decision, for Althea had it in her power to compensate him richly for what he had lost. A glance full of promise flashed upon him from her eloquent eyes, and, turning toward the pedestal at the same instant, she asked softly, Is the compensation I must and will bestow connected with the arachne? An eager yes confirmed this question, and a swift movement of her expressive lips showed him that his boldest anticipations were to be surpassed. How gladly he would have detained her longer, but she was already the object of all eyes, and his too followed her in expected suspense, as she gave an order to the female attendant, and then stood thoughtfully for some time before the platform. When she at last ascended it, the spectators supposed she would again use a cloth, but, instead of asking anything more from the assistants, she cast aside even the peplos that covered her shoulders. Now, almost lean in her slenderness, she stood with downcast eyes, but suddenly she loosed the double chain, adorned with flashing gems, from her neck, the circlets from her upper arms and wrists, and lastly, even the diadem, a gift bestowed by her relative, Queen Arsinoe, from her narrow brow. The female slaves received them, and then with swift movements, Althea divided her thick long tresses of red hair into narrower strands, which she flung over her back, bosom, and shoulders. Next, as if delirious, she threw her head so far on one side that it almost touched her left shoulder, 
and stared wildly upward toward the right, at the same time raising her bare arms so high that they extended far above her head. It was again her purpose to present the appearance of defending herself against a viewless power, yet she was wholly unlike the Niobe, whom she had formerly personated, for not only anguish, horror, and defiance, but deep despair and inexpressible astonishment were portrayed by her features, which obediently expressed the slightest emotion. Something unprecedented, incomprehensible even to herself, was occurring, and to Ledska, who watched her with an expectation as passionate as if her own weal and woe depended upon Althea's every movement, it seemed as if an unintelligible marvel was happening before her eyes, and a still greater one was impending. For was the woman up there really a woman like herself, and the others whose eyes were now fixed upon the hated actress, no less intently than her own? Did her keen senses deceive her, or was not what was occurring actually a mysterious transformation? As Althea stood there, her delicate arms seemed to have lengthened and lost even their slightest roundness. Her figure had become even more slender and incorporeal, and how strangely her thin fingers spread apart. How stiffly the strands of the parted, wholly uncurled locks stood out in the air. Did it not seem as if they were to help her move? The black shadow, which Althea's figure and limbs cast upon the surface of the brightly lighted pedestal. No, it was no deception. It not only resembled the spinner among insects, it presented the exact picture of a spider. The Greek's slender body had contracted, her delicate arms and narrow braids of hair changed into spider legs, and the many-jointed hands were already grasping for their prey like a spider, or preparing to wind the murderous threads around another living creature. Arachne, the spider, fell almost inaudibly from her quivering lips, and, overpowered by torturing fear, she was already turning away from the frightful image, when the storm of applause which burst from the Alexandrian guests soothed her excited imagination. Instead of the spider, a slender, lank woman, with long, outstretched bare arms, and fingers spread wide apart, fluttering hair, and wandering eyes, again stood before Ledska. But no peace was granted to her throbbing heart, for while Althea, with perspiring brow and quivering lips, descended from the pedestal, and was received with loud demonstrations of astonishment and delight, the glare of a flash of lightning burst from the clouds, and a loud peal of thunder shook the night air, and reverberated a long time over the water. At the same instant, a loud cry rang from beneath the canopy. Thione, the wife of Alexander the Great's comrade, though absolutely fearless in the presence of human foes, dreaded the thunder by which Zeus announced his anger. Seized with sudden terror, she commanded a slave to obtain a black lamb for sacrifice, and earnestly entreated her husband and her other companions to go on board the ship with her and seek shelter in its safe, rain-proof cabin, for already heavy drops were beginning to fall upon the tensely drawn awning. Nemesis! exclaimed the Grammateus. Nemesis! whispered young Philotus to Daphne in a confidential murmur, throwing his own costly purple cloak around her to shield her from the rain. Nowhere that we mortals overstep the bounds allotted to us do we await her in vain. Then bending down to her again, he added, by way of explanation, the winged daughter of night would prove herself negligent if she allowed me to enjoy wholly without drawback the overwhelming happiness of being with you once more. 
Nemesis, remarked Thoas, an aristocratic young hipparch of the guards of the Diadochi, who had studied in Athens and belonged to the peripatetics there. The master sees in the figure of this goddess the indignation which the good fortune of the base, or the unworthy, use of good fortune inspires in us. She keeps a happy mean between envy and malicious satisfaction. The young soldier looked around him, expecting applause, but no one was listening. The tempest was spreading terror among most of the freedmen and slaves. Philotus and Myrtilus were following Daphne and her companion Chrysilla as they hurried into the tent. The deep commanding tones of the old Philippus vainly shouted the name of Althea, whom, as he had bestowed his hospitality upon her in Pelusium, he regarded as his charge, while at intervals he reprimanded the black slaves who were to carry his wife to the ship, but at another heavy peal of thunder, set down the litter to throw themselves on their knees, and beseech the angry god for mercy. Gross, the steward whom Archias had given to his daughter, a Bithynian who had attached himself to one school of philosophy after another, and thereby ceased to believe in the power of the Olympians, lost his quiet composure in this confusion, and even his usual good nature deserted him. With harsh words, and no less harsh blows, he rushed upon the servants, who, instead of carrying the costly household utensils and embroidered cushions into the tent, drew out their amulets and idols, to confide their own imperiled lives to the protection of higher powers. Meanwhile, the gusts of wind which accompanied the outbreak of the storm extinguished the lamps and pitch pans. The awning was torn from the posts, and amid the wild confusion rang the commandant of Pelusium's shouts for Althea and the screams of the two Egyptian slave women, who, with their foreheads pressed to the ground, were praying, while the angry Gross was trying, by kicks and blows, to compel them to rise and go to work. The officers were holding a whispered consultation whether they should accept the invitation of Proclus, and spend the short remnant of the night on his galley over the wine, or first, according to the counsel of their pious commandant, wait in the neighboring temple of Zeus, until the storm was over. The tempest had completely scattered Daphne's guests. Even Letska glanced very rarely toward the tents. She had thrown herself on the ground under the sycamore, to beseech the angry deity for mercy, but, deeply as fear moved her agitated soul, she could not pray, but listened anxiously whenever an unexpected noise came from the meeting-place of the Greeks. Then the tones of a familiar voice reached her. It was Hermann's, and the person to whom he was speaking could be no one but the uncanny spider-woman, Althea. They were coming to have a secret conversation under the shade of the dense foliage of the sycamore. That was easily perceived, and in an instant, Ledska's fear yielded to a different feeling. Holding her breath, she nestled close to the trunk of the ancient tree to listen, and the first word she heard was the name Nemesis, which had just reached her from the tent. She knew its meaning, for Tennis also had a little temple dedicated to the terrible goddess, which was visited by the Egyptians and Beamites, as well as the Greeks. A triumphant smile flitted over her unveiled features, for there was no other divinity on whose aid she could more confidently rely. She could unchain the vengeance which threatened Hermon, with a far more terrible danger than the thunderclouds above, under the protection, nay, as it were, at the behest of Nemesis. Tomorrow she would be the first to anoint her altar. Now she rejoiced that her wealthy father imposed no restriction upon her in the management of household affairs, 
for she need spare no expense in choosing the animal she intended to offer as a sacrifice. This reflection flashed through her mind, with the speed of lightning, while she was listening to Althea's conversation with the sculptor. The question here can be no clever play upon the name and the nature of the daughter of Erebus and Knight, said the Thracian gravely. I will remind you that there is another nemesis, besides the just being, who drives from his stolen ease, the unworthy mortal who suns himself in good fortune. The nemesis whom I will recall today, while angry Zeus is hurling his thunderbolts, is the other, who chastises sacrilege. Ate, the swiftest and most terrible of the Arinnes. I will invoke her wrath upon you in this hour, if you do not confess the truth to me fully and entirely. Ask, Herman interrupted in a hollow tone, only you, strange woman. Only, she hastily broke in, whatever the answer may be, I must pose to you as the model for your arachne, and perhaps it may come to that, but first I must know, briefly and quickly, for they will be looking for me immediately. Do you love Daphne? No, he answered positively. True, she has been dear to me from childhood. And, Althea added, completing the sentence, you owe her father a debt of gratitude, but that is not new to me. I know also how little reason you gave her for loving you. Yet her heart belongs neither to Philotus, the great lord with the little brain, nor to the famous sculptor Myrtilus, whose body is really too delicate to bear all the laurels with which he is overloaded, but to you, and you alone. I know it. Hermon tried to contradict her, but Althea, without allowing him to speak, hurried on. No matter, I wish to know whether you loved her. True, according to appearances, your heart does not glow for her, and hitherto you have disdained to transform by her aid, at a single stroke, the poverty which ill suits you into wealth. But it was not merely to speak of the daughter of Arceus that I accompanied you into this tempest, from which I would fain escape as quickly as possible. So speak quickly. I am to serve you in your art, and yet, if I understood you correctly, you have already found here another excellent model. A native of the country, answered Hermon in an embarrassed tone. And for my sake you allowed her to wait for you in vain? It is as you say. And you have promised to seek her? Certainly, but before the appointed hour came, I met you. You rose before me like a new sun, shedding a new light that was full of promise. Everything else sank into darkness. And, if you will fulfill the hope which you have awakened in this heart, just at that moment, another flash of lightning blazed, and, while the thunder still shook the air, Althea continued his interrupted protestation. Then you will give yourself to me, body and soul. But Zeus, who hears oaths, is reminding us of his presence. And what will await you if the Beamite whom you betrayed invokes the wrath of Nemesis against you? The Nemesis of the Barbarians, he retorted contemptuously. She only places herself at the service of my art reluctantly. But you, Althea, if you will loan yourself to me as a model, I will succeed in doing my very best. But you have just permitted me to behold a miracle, Arachne herself, whom you became, you enchantress. It was real, actual life, and that, that is the highest goal. The highest? she asked hesitatingly. You will have to represent the female form and beauty, Herman. Beauty? will be there allied with truth flamed hermon if you you peerless more than beautiful creature keep your word to me but you will 
let me be sure of it is a little love also blended with the wish to serve the artist a little love she repeated scornfully this matter concerns love complete and full or none we will see each other again to-morrow then show me what the model althea is worth to you with these words she vanished in the darkness while the call of her name again rang from the tents althea he cried in a tone of mournful reproach as he perceived her disappearance hurrying after her but the dense gloom soon forced him to give up the pursuit ledska too left her place beneath the sycamore she had seen and heard enough duty now commanded her to execute vengeance and the bold hanno was ready to risk his life for her end of book one chapter twelve